Father, we thank you that you are a rock, that in difficult times you protect us. God, when Satan's doubts and accusations creep into our mind, when we have sinned, Lord, you shield us, you remind us of your Son. Father, when we think about our ruined life, how we've all gone our own way, how we followed the wrong path, God, we remember that in Christ he rose and conquered the grave and conquered death, and so we thank you for that. God, help us as we study your word this morning, and as we finish the book of Micah, that you would be with us and help us to see your character clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Last year, right as I was going on vacation, I'm hoping I'm not jinxing myself this morning, I was leaving work. I was working at the YMCA at that point. I was doing their summer camp, which was at a school, and I hit a curb with my car, and I popped my back, I think it was my back right tire. Uh, The problem is that, this may shock some of you, I didn't know how to change a tire. They didn't teach me that in driver's ed. My dad, it never had come up before. And so I learned that day how to change a tire, but I had no idea what to do. So I tried calling a tow truck company, you know, to come and help and get me back on the road. And they were so busy in Indianapolis and Greenwood area that I waited there for an hour and a half for somebody to get there. And I called my dad and he said, well, do you think Pastor Reed would know how to change a tire. I said, I, I don't know if he does or not, but like it's going to take him forever to get up here. Well, after an hour and a half of waiting, I was willing to try. So I called Pastor Reed and he knew. And so he said, just wait and I'll get up there and I'll help you. And so I was sitting in my car. I was pulled into this light store in their parking lot and I'm just waiting and there's nothing else really I can do, but just sit there and wait. And I learned something about myself that day, something I should have already known. Number one, I didn't know how to change a tire, and that was an issue. So I learned after that experience. And number two, I don't like waiting. How many of you would raise your hand and say you like waiting? Anybody? Nobody wants to wait for something, whether it's a flat tire to get changed, whether it's your food at a restaurant, you know, whether it's waiting for... Um, a slow clerk at the checkout line at the grocery store, waiting at the DMV. I don't know what children's movie it was, but there was a children's movie that had a sloth that was the DMV clerk, and I thought that was pretty accurate, you know, considering how fast it takes to get through the line at the DMV. None of us like to wait for anything, do we? And yet, all of us at different points in our lives, for big things, for small things and everything in between, all of us have to wait. And in our text this morning, we're going to go through about a chapter and a half of Micah to finish the book today. Now, I'm going on vacation this week. Next week, Schaefer is actually going to be preaching for us. I'll still be here, but he's going to preach for me so that I don't have to prepare and things like that this week. So we're looking forward to that. But because I'm not going to be preaching next week, I figured I could do the last chapter and a half of Micah And it'll take me a couple hours, so, you know, after I'm done, I'll be gone. I won't be here to hear anybody complain about it. (laughs) But as I look at this last chapter and a half of Micah, what I think is the key idea, the main verse, is in verse 7. 
Micah speaking for himself, he says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I don't choose to wait. I don't choose to be patient. I have to wait. I have to be patient. There's nothing else I could do. If somebody was, you know, if you went to a restaurant and they said, well, you can have your food in five minutes or in 50 minutes. I don't think any of us is going to choose to wait 50 minutes to get our food, no matter what they're doing to it back there. None of us like to wait, but sometimes in life we face circumstances in which we must wait on the Lord. What am I talking about? Well, today in our text, we see several different situations and circumstances in Micah's life where he has to wait on the Lord. Micah's living in a sin-cursed world, the same as us, but he sees all of this wickedness going on around him, and all Micah can do is wait. He's facing trials in his life. He's facing disappointments. He's facing heartache. He's even facing discipline from God. But what Micah resolves to do What I believe we should resolve to do from this text is to wait on the Lord in every situation. Wait on the Lord in every situation. I think we see three different situations in this last chapter and a half of Micah in which Micah must wait on the Lord. First, we wait on the Lord in times of discipline. We wait on the Lord in times of discipline. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 6. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, It is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Remember our text last week, the first first eight verses of chapter 8, or of chapter 6, in which God instructs Israel on what it means to truly worship him. You see, Israel didn't know what it meant to worship God. They thought they could bring a sacrifice that was going to be big enough or expensive enough to please God. And what does God want from Israel? What does he really desire from them in worship? Well, it's three things. That you would do justice. That you would love mercy. That you would walk humbly with your God. And so we see how does Israel respond to that? How did Israel try to relate with God? And we see what happens in the text in in verses 9 through 12. The Lord is crying out to them once again. Remember, this is like a courtroom setting between God and the nation of Israel. And he's telling them, this is what you've done. This is what you've done. They're going to receive the rod, which means correction, discipline. It's like a shepherd's staff that they use to sometimes guide the sheep or strongly guide the sheep into submission. Look at verse 10. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? People of Israel were collecting for themselves treasures and bribes and financial goods that were not meant for them. This house of the wicked could be the city of Jerusalem, but it's probably just the house or the building that they stored all of their wicked possessions in the lord is asking a rhetorical question he's saying do you want me to just excuse your sin i see you sinning day in and day out and god's saying that he can't excuse israel's sin anymore look at verse 11 shall i acquit the man 
with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights. There's traders, there's people in the marketplace that are trading, they're buying things, but they're not being honest in how they're doing it. They're marking things up, they're not using honest scales, and so they're stealing from people. This is more than just gas being really expensive, okay? But these are evil people in the marketplace that are raising rates and prices on things to try and deceive people. Look at verse 12. He says, your rich men are full of violence. They're not just financially stealing from people, but they're actually physically hurting other people in their lives. They're full of violence. We see earlier in the book of Micah, in chapters 2 and 3, that they were actually waiting to attack innocent people. Your rich men are full of violence and your inhabitants speak lies. They did not speak the truth. They were deceitful towards others. He says, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. What did God want Israel to be? Just. Were they just? No, they were actually stealing from people. God wanted Israel to be loving. Is it loving to be violent towards people? Absolutely not. And God wanted people to walk wisely in fellowship with him. And instead they were lying. It said they had a deceitful mouth. And so what is God going to do to Israel for these sins of violence and of greed and of deception? Well, he's going to judge them for this. We see the Lord's discipline. Continue with me in verse 13. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. This is a strong rebuke from God, a grievous blow. I think of it almost like a sucker punch, something that knocks the wind out of you. God is going to judge. He is going to discipline Israel because of their sin. And we see here at the end of chapter 6 these curses that are coming onto the nation of Israel because of their sin against God. And they're often called curses of futility. What does it mean to be futile? It means that whatever you try to do isn't going to work. Whatever you try to accomplish in life, it's not going to be successful. If you've ever watched Star Trek, the Borg say resistance is futile. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just move on. But if you know what I'm talking about, then you'll understand a little bit of what Micah is trying to say here. So these are curses. These are judgments from God that are making their works futile. Look with me at verse 14. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. These people are eating. They're trying to get full, but they just keep being more and more hungry. They can never fill themselves up. He says, you shall put away, but not preserve. They're trying to save. They're trying to store up, be good stewards of money. But they can't ever save enough. It says, what you preserve, I will give to the sword. So they're saving up stuff. They're trying to gather things together. But the enemy nations are coming in and they're taking it away. He says, you will sow, you shall sow, but not reap. They're farming, they're trying to gather crops, they're trying to save, they're trying to go through life, but everything they do is cursed by the Lord. He says, you shall tread olives, 
But you shall not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. Again, they're working to try to get oil. They're working to try to get grapes. But they are unable to do any of this. Why is this? Why is God disciplining? Why is God cursing the nation of Israel? Look with me at verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab. Who is Omri? He was Ahab's father. He was a wicked king. It says in the book of Kings that he was more wicked than all the other kings that were before him. He established these laws and these statutes that led to evil practices within the nation of Israel. He did not follow God's law. Who is Ahab? Well, if you've read the Old Testament, Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in the entire Bible. He was married to Jezebel, and he was um, responsible for Baal worship in the nation of Israel. He was responsible for all these evil and vile practices. But this was a hundred or so years ago before Micah's day, and so they're acting like old and wicked kings that had been in the nation of Israel. He says, you've kept their statutes. You've walked in their councils. That I may make you a desolation, that I may make your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the punishment coming down from God because of Israel's sin. Because Israel had sinned against God, because they had done these wicked actions, God must bring discipline. God must bring judgment. So how would Israel respond to this? How would you respond to this? Think about being Micah, who is a just normal person trying to please the Lord. Not all of this was his fault. Look with me at chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 9. We're going to get here in a little bit. I want to give you a preview to see how does Micah respond to this discipline from the Lord. He says, I will bear the indignation from the Lord. What does that mean? It means the punishment, the curse coming down from God. Because I have sinned against him. How many times in your life have you had a trial or a consequence for your sin? And instead of fighting it or arguing or getting down deeper into your sin, you recognize that God is putting this trial in your life to help you repent. And you humbly submit to that. Now, it can be tricky sometimes to navigate, okay, when are trials, trials that are for you know, consequences of sin? When are there trials in my life that just build me up in my faith? But do we recognize God's discipline in our life? When he puts hard things, when he puts trials into our life, that God is using those things to build us up. And so we submit faithfully to him and we trust in his promises. Continue reading in verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out into the light. 
I shall look upon his vindication. Who do we trust in times of discipline to bring us out of that, to help us, to restore us? It is the Lord. You wait on the Lord in times of discipline. In times when you know God is correcting you, God is helping you to learn, to grow. You wait on the Lord in times when maybe you don't know if you've done anything wrong and you're like Job. And God is testing your faith to help you become more like him. You wait on the Lord in times of discipline. Secondly, notice with me at the beginning of chapter 7. Wait on the Lord in times of wickedness. Look with me at verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, and when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat. Who's talking at this point? It's Micah. And Micah is talking about his own present situation, and he constructs this poem. Some call it a psalm, some call it a Proverbs. I think it has a little bit of both in it. And it's this poem that he recites talking about his own situation of living in wickedness. Woe is me refers to judgment or to curse that's come upon someone. It's not just throwing yourself a pity party, but it's you admitting that there's something really bad and awful that is happening to you. Why is Micah woeing? Why is he upset? Because of his situation. Because he's looking for righteous people in his life to have fellowship with. He's looking for other believers, other people that have been faithful to God. And he can't find any. He says, I'm like the summer fruit when it has been gathered. He's looking for fruit, for grapes. And he says, there is no cluster to eat. There is no first ripe fig. He's looking for something. He's looking for fruit. He's looking for other good food, and he can't find any of it. Look at verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth. Micah is looking for godly people to encourage him to have fellowship with, and he can't find any. He says, and there is no one upright among mankind. There's no one that wants to do right. Instead, what does he say? He says, they all wait and lie in blood. They each hunt the other with a net. (coughs) Instead of being able to find righteous people in his life, Micah could only find wicked People who wanted to do wickedness. He lives in a wicked culture. Look at some of the wicked actions that the people of Israel are doing during this time. He says their hands, in verse 3, are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. They're doing evil actions. They have evil desires. They're taking bribes. Micah can't find anyone who is godly in 
the land. Look at verse 4. The best of them is like a briar, a thorny patch, something that sticks and curses others. The best people in the land were a curse to Micah. The most upright of him, of them, he says, is a thorn hedge. Think about how wicked and evil this nation has become. And how isolating this is for Micah to be here in this situation and to not have any friends, to not have any fellowship, to not have any hope. At the end of verse 4, the day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. So Micah sees the wickedness, but these watchmen are the other prophets who predicted judgment on the wicked. And Micah knows that this judgment is going to come, that the wicked people would be punished. Look, and we'll continue to see their wickedness in verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. For the daughter rises up against her mother. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Micah can't trust neighbors. He can't trust friends. He can't trust family. He's isolated. He feels alone. Like everyone else is turning against him. Like no one else understands. No one else wants to be godly. Everyone else is pursuing this wickedness. Do you ever feel that way in life? Where you feel alone? Now obviously we have the body of Christ we have this group of believers here. Do you ever feel like family doesn't understand? Like you can't trust your neighbors? Like they don't want to do what's right? Those who should know what right is, who you, maybe you've taught even what the right thing to do is, they seek and pursue their sin instead. This is how Micah felt. This was Micah's situation that everyone else around him was choosing wickedness and evil. So what would Micah do in this time of wickedness, in this time of fear and anxiety and separation? Micah would wait on the Lord. He says in verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Micah trusts in the promises of God. He decides to wait on the Lord, to hope in him, to find his satisfaction in God, to trust that God's ways are better, to not become so concerned about his own life and his own situation, but to trust in his Sovereign God. So he commits himself to waiting. He commits himself to watching. And it's not easy. Doesn't mean all those anxieties go away. It doesn't mean all those frustrations leave. 
but it just means that Micah waits. This waiting is a confident expectation that something good is going to happen, that God is going to work, that God would help him. I was sitting at a Sonic a couple weeks ago. You know, at Sonic, they've got all the parking spots where you can sit and order. And I've been waiting on my food for quite a while, about 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, I see right in front of me some students of mine at the school. And they don't see me yet. So I'm sitting down, and I've got my cap on, and I kind of hide <coughs> behind my cap. And all of a sudden, I look over. And they all see me and they're waving at me. And there's nothing I can do. I'm just forced to smile and wave and wait. And I waited another probably 10 minutes because they'd lost my order. And I had to call them back and get all my food remade. So the students are just kind of staring at me while I'm sitting there by myself in my car waiting on my food to come. And I felt trapped. I wasn't going to leave without the food I paid for, obviously. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? What does it mean to trust in him? Consider some of these ideas. First of all, you live as a Christian with hope. What does that mean? That means you don't become one of these people who complains and who grumbles and who gripes about the world about their situation, who's always negative, who always complains about how bad and wicked the world is. That is not a confident expectation of something good that's going to happen. Do you think we're going to lose? Do you think that God is going to lose in the end? That he has not planned everything out? That he's not seen where we are at this point in history? And that he is not at work right now in the lives of his children. We live as Christians with hope. Now some of us are more positive than others. I understand that. Not all of us wake up with a smile on our face. But do you live as a Christian with hope that God is who he says he is, that he's going to do what he says he's going to do? The world is going to get more wicked. That's the truth. We see that even today. It is going to get from bad to worse. But we live with hope that God will continue to build his church, that God will continue to save souls, that God will protect his children. Secondly, live as a Christian sharing the gospel. Live as a Christian sharing the gospel. In a cruel world, we remember that they are lost and that they need the gospel message. It reminds us that even though they're evil and even though they're wicked, that Christ died for them and that the gospel message is for them as well. You live as a Christian sharing the gospel with others. And then lastly, live faithful to God. While the world is going from bad to worse, don't be infected by them. Don't collapse on your standards. Don't try to be like the world. Like Mark said today, 
in Sunday school. Don't try to stop feeding the sheep to entertain the goats. Don't collapse on your standards. Share the gospel with people. Live with hope. But also live faithful to what God has told us in his word. Lastly, I want us to see, wait on the Lord in times of success. Micah's situation would not always be this bleak. God would eventually work and save his people. Notice with me in verse 8. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. Again, there's that hope that in our darkest times that we will rise again. He says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light. That God shines light into the darkest parts of our lives. We talked about verse 9 earlier. We accept God's discipline. In this present circumstance, we resolve to live faithfully to God and what he's put into our lives. Verse 10. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. God will win. Those who mock God will not have the last laugh, but God will be victorious. What will happen to the nation of Israel? Look at verse 11. They will have a day, this future day of the kingdom that we saw in chapter 4. And Micah says it will be a day for building your walls. And that day the boundary shall be far extended. And that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river. All these people are coming to the nation of Israel because God has blessed them. Because God has given them success. Because he has given them victory. The people of God will be blessed, will be victorious. But notice the earth. The earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. What does victory look like for Israel? God's people will be elevated, protected, restored, given success. The rest of the earth, the enemies of God, will become desolate. They will be destroyed. Why will the kingdom be so great? Look at verse 14. God will be their shepherd. He says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead in the days of old. God will be their shepherd. He will protect them. He will be with them. God's always been with them. He reminds them of this in verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you marvelous things. God has protected Israel from Egypt. He will continue to do that. Verse 16, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread 
to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. God's people will be elevated. God's enemies will become like snakes. They'll become lowest point in the earth. They will crawl around on the ground. Micah sees victory here for the nation of Israel. And it's all because of who? It's all because of the Lord. And so Micah ends this chapter with one of my favorite parts, I think, in the whole book. This song or this poem, praising the Lord. Look at verse 18. Who is a God like you? You remember what Micah's name means? Who is like our God? So Micah uses his name here, actually, to ask this question. Who is a God like you? Who is like the Lord our God? He is unique. There is no one like him. You could go to the farthest ends of the earth, and you could not find a God like him. What has God done for us? He's pardoned our iniquity. Our sins, he's forgiven. Our transgressions, he's looked the other way on. He's forgiven. It says he passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. It says he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Why is God so unique? Because he forgives our sins. He says in verse 20, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers in the days of old. Micah has this confidence to wait on the Lord because God is a great God. Because there is no one like him. Because all of us, to the best of our ability, could try to forgive each other. But without the forgiveness of God, we fall short. Because God loves us. Because he has been faithful to each and every one of us. He's a great and powerful God. Notice, as Israel and Micah keep sinning and falling short, God stays faithful. He always keeps his promises, even to the end. How can we wait on the Lord in times of trial? First, we acknowledge God's sovereignty, that God is in control, that he works all things together for good, that he is not, that he's got a plan for our lives. Secondly, we remember God's goodness, that God's been good to us, and he will continue to be good to us. We follow God's will, that God has a will for our lives, and then we trust God's plan, that God has a plan for our lives that he will work out for good. Let's pray. Father God, there is no one like you. 
You are unique among all other people, among anything else we could worship in our lives. God, we thank you for your good works in our lives. We thank you, God, that when we've sinned, that you've forgiven us. We thank you that when we fall short, that you sustain us. God, even as we talked about last week, when we are unjust, you show us justice. When we fall short of loving others, you show us mercy. And when we are not faithful to walk with you, that, God, you are always faithful to us. God, I pray that you would help us to respond according to your will. pray that each and every day we would recognize these things and that you would help us to wait on you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.